And let's turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 2. So our sound man uh, is not here today, um, which is why I'm holding this microphone instead of the, the uh, fancy, you know, thing that he hands me each week. Um, and uh, he, he just wouldn't give up his honeymoon to come run the soundboard for us. I, I couldn't understand that. So uh, we need to talk about it. Discipline, maybe? King? Should that be a discipline issue, you think? All right. But anyway, he did get married yesterday, so we'll give him a bye this week. Mike and Laura. It was a beautiful wedding, and uh, we had a wonderful time celebrating with them. And uh, do pray for them uh, as they begin their lives together this day. Luke chapter 10, verse 2. Luke is, uh, we're just going to be here one chapter, one verse, uh, one gospel this morning for one week. Uh, Somewhat of a transition week between Christmas and New Year. Um, A number of our people are out of town and traveling. And uh, so I figured what we would do this week is, is root down in this one verse and take a moment to look back and look forward and ask ourselves, uh, what does it mean to be a church? Uh, what are we doing? And how can we be praying? And so I, I just want to keep it simple this morning. We're going to talk about what we can be praying for as we move into 2014. So let's first start by reading the text together, Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Follow along in your Bible as I read. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and a place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Let me read verse 2 one more time because I want you to really get that verse in your heads. The harvest is plentiful, he says, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray and just ask God to speak to us this morning through this verse. God, we do it. Come before you, we ask that, that you take these words that are written on paper and ink and do something in our hearts and make them alive. Uh, pray that you convict us of sin, that we recognize that we are reading your very word to us, that you speak to us through the Holy Spirit this morning, enlighten us, give us wisdom, and may we be a people who pray earnestly to you, the Lord of harvest, that you may send laborers into your harvest. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I grew up in a suburb of Akron, Ohio, and we had about an acre, acre and a half of property that we lived on. My parents were these incredible gardeners. Uh, They would grow on our acre, acre and a half, a garden, and they would grow enough food, mostly vegetables, to last us an entire year and into the next. We would eat green beans and corn and lima beans ugh, and other things, tomatoes, tomato sauce, salsa. Any, we would just be feasting all year long from this garden that my parents would grow. So 
me, living in the city of Baltimore, I've tried to embrace the green thumb that just must be in my blood by growing a little garden in my backyard, if you can call it that. And I like to consider myself as part of a growing movement of urban gardeners, which I think I probably just romanticize in my head when I'm out there pulling weeds or picking green beans, like I'm part of something big, bringing fresh fresh vegetables into a food desert, whatever. Anyway, join me, if you would, in urban gardening, all right? Um, Now, I understand that some of you uh, aren't from Ohio, and you don't know the goodness of Ohio soil, and you may not have had uh, green thumb gardener parents, and you don't have green thumbness in your blood. So I decided this morning I want to give you a lesson, a quick lesson on gardening as we begin. Can I do that? And after, after all, we are called the garden. Uh, just kind of putting two and two together. Um, so let's try to make some connections in our head what this might look like. All right, so lessons on gardening, all right? Lesson number one, find soil. You have to find soil. You can't plant in, say, gravel or cement. Find soil. Find good soil. You don't want soil that's rocky or diseased. Find good soil. All right, that's lesson number one. Lesson number two, plant seeds. All right. Lesson number three, water those planted seeds. You tracking with me? Lesson number four, tend to the plants as they sprout from the ground and grow. All right. Now, this is the hard part. The first three steps, that was the easier part. Fourth step is the difficult part. Tend to the plants. This requires a lot of hard work, often in the blazing sun of Baltimore's July, pulling weeds, feeding the roots, watering the vegetables, not overwatering your tomatoes. Now, one thing I want you to pick up here as we think of gardening is this. Every gardener has what you could call personal responsibility for certain tasks, all right? It is up to you, the gardener, to find soil, to plant seeds in soil, to water those seeds, to, as the plants grow, to take care of the plants, to nurture them, make sure the, their, their roots are strong and their stems and their stalks are growing healthy and uh, pulling off any kind of Uh, growths that you don't want and weeds that may grow up and spring around it. A lot of hard work, a lot of responsibility on your end. Now, there are some things that you just can't do, all right? Like, for instance, my uh, amazing urban garden in my little square of dirt in my backyard, I grew a tomato plant. I grew a couple tomato plants this last year. And so I'm out there working all year. What I can't do is this. A couple things, actually. Um, I, I, I really, some people could, I guess I can't because I'm just not that good. I can't do anything about the diseases that might lie dormant in the soil that you'll sort of discover later as, uh, your plant dies. Can't do anything about it. Uh, second thing I can't do anything about is this. I can't do anything about the rain, lack of rain. I can't do anything about the sun, whether or not it shines or whether or not it's cloudy and, and there's, there's no sunshine throughout the day. There are some things that even though I'm working hard on my little square garden throughout the summer, there's some things I just 
have no control over. And then here's the biggest thing that I really just have no control over, and that's this. Uh, toward the end of the growing season, all of a sudden, Lord willing, little green tomatoes appear on my tomato plants. I can't do anything about whether or not they appear. When they appear, appear, where they appear, how well they grow. And so it is with the church. We are personally responsible for finding soil, planting seeds, watering seeds, tending to, tending to the plants, a lot of very hard and difficult labor and work. And then there are some things that are just beyond our control. And we wait and we hope and we watch as God grows a plant and as God brings forth fruit. So what I want to do this morning is with that image in mind and going into this passage, I want to lean into the sovereignty of God in gardening. All right, are you, are you tracking with me here? So God is sovereign over my tomatoes, the fruit that grows, the plants that grow, how and when they pop out. We are leaning into the sovereignty of God this morning. And if we were literally growing food, like our livelihood was based on whether or not our plants produce fruit this year, we would be praying literally for our gardens a whole lot more than we actually do, right? We would be begging God, please, like do what I can't do. Like I'm doing my best, I'm trying to be faithful, but do what I can't do and let this little thing grow. Do what I can't do and let fruit develop on this plant that I may harvest. So that's leaning into the sovereignty of God and gardening. All right, are you tracking with me? So that's what we're looking at here in this text. Now, as we do this, I want to I want to do it in this way. I want to give you four. Uh, well, well, I want to give you three things to pray for. All right. First, I want to talk about the fact that we should pray. Then I want to give you three direct things that we should pray for as we lean into. Uh, the sovereignty of God in gardening. Are you with me? So, first, let me just say it. We should pray. All right? Is that an aha for anybody? I never thought about that. <laughs> I never thought we should pray. You know, we live our lives like, it, like it's an aha, right? But it shouldn't be. We should pray. Look at the text. Chapter 10, verse 2, he says, And Jesus, he said to, him, said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, what does he say? Pray. Pray how? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. So there is prayers that ought to be prayed, and we find here who we are to direct those prayers to, and that is the Lord of the harvest. There is a season of harvest. A fixed time appointed. There is a, an autumn that is coming uh, toward the end of the growing season. A fixed season in which the, the, the fruit and the vegetables begin to develop and we can now harvest during that appointed season. Who appoints the seasons of harvest? It is the Lord of the harvest. So we are to pray to the Lord of the harvest who has a fixed season in which we will harvest the fruit for those of you who are converted here today. 
you've believed, you've repented of your sins and you've believed the gospel, there was a moment in which you were converted. And the Lord of the harvest had fixed that season in your life, this time in which you would, your eyes would be opened to the, the reality of sin, the reality of hell, the, the beauty of the cross, the reality of the good news of Jesus Christ in this world, living for you, dying for you, and rising for you. A fixed season in which you would be saved. Now, there may be people even in this room, in churches across this city. I guarantee there's people in buildings across this country this morning who are currently living in that fixed season in which which God has appointed, the Lord of the harvest has appointed for them to be harvested. And I guarantee you that for them, that God has known them from before creation, from Before that very first flower sprang, God had set his affections and his love upon them. And he fixed this season of time, this morning, to harvest their souls. And so then we are to pray to the Lord of the harvest for souls. In 1858, there was a New York businessman who had denied Christ his entire life. Uh, if you were friends with this guy, you probably would have believed that he was hopeless. His wife had wept many tears over him. She questioned the possibility of whether or not he would ever repent and believe the gospel and become a Christian. Do you have people like that in your life, I wonder? And this man walks into a prayer meeting. And there in the prayer meeting, he hears the prayers of God's people. And amidst the prayer meeting, he hears the gospel and he hears the the, the reality of sin, the reality of God's love for us and the forgiveness that God has offered us through Christ. And miraculously, the scales drop from his eyelids and he sees the cross. He sees the reality of life. He sees the reality of eternity and he repents and believes the gospel. He comes home to his wife and to her amazement, he says, Oh, I have found the Savior. I have given myself completely to him. I am with you now and I am with you now for all of eternity. What he discovered was this, that his wife had been attending the very same prayer prayer meeting and was begging God for his soul. For weeks, for months, she faithfully prayed to the Lord of harvest for her husband's soul. Friends, the very means that through which God uh, uses to effectually wake up and call out the dead and call them into life are the very prayers of his people. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. In 2014, as a church, we need to pray more than we did in 2013. Can we all agree on that? We need to pray more. Prayer must be the foundation through which we minister, the foundation upon which we stand. It's our, it's our, it's our, uh, our, it's our support. 
It's what we have. It's the means through which God, that, what, that God uses. Let's pray to the Lord of, of harvest. All right, so we all got that first point, right? We've got to pray. Everybody agree? If you don't agree, you can just leave now because the rest of it doesn't matter, all right? For those who believe that we should pray to the Lord of harvest and that we should pray more, three things that I want us to be praying for as we close out 2013 and as we enter into 2014. Jesus says this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to do what? He says to send out laborers into the harvest. So we ought to pray that Christians will be built up. The picture here is a field of wheat that must be harvested. If the farmer doesn't harvest the wheat, the wheat gets old and hard and is, 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 is uh, beyond uh, a state with which you can harvest it and enjoy it. So he said, look, the harvest is ready, but the laborers are few. So what are we praying for? We pray that God will build up Christians to go out into the harvest, that God will build up uh, laborers. How does God collect the souls? How does he harvest the souls of of his people, it is through us being sent out into the world. Now, how do we become a laborer that can be sent out into the world? The word that we use, which talks about sort of how we create warriors for this battle, the word is edification. Everybody say edification. It literally means building something up to edify, to build up. So how do we then send out laborers? Well, we build laborers. We build up saints. We, build, we, we, we work together. We minister. We serve together. How do we do this? Through the life of the church, through the ministry of the church, through the gospel being preached, through the prayers of God's people, through praying together in small groups and large groups, through individual and public Bible reading together through one-on-one discipleship, through small groups, through regularly gathering here together in this school for encouragement. We come together by the fire, so, so to speak, of, of, of the gospel to, to be warmed up, to be reminded of what we're doing, and then we build one another up and go back out into the war. I was recently talking with, a, with a, another pastor about ministry, and, and it struck me as he was talking about the church that he leads, uh, talking about the, the, the ceremonies, the funerals, the weddings, the schedules, uh, organizing what's happening with the building when, the preschool, the budgets, budget shortfalls, um, uh, just all, uh, all sorts of uh, administrative tasks and duties, problems with people, complaints from people. Somebody told him, hey, nothing's going to change in this church until you leave. Things like that. You know, the little things that pastors uh, deal with. And um, what, But this is what occurred to me as I was listening to him, him share, of, like real stuff, you know. What occurred to me is this. There is a temptation that we would sort of take all of these tasks and duties and things 
and say this is the end in and of itself. Like this is the point. Why does the church exist? Well, the church exists so we can do funerals and so we can have weddings, so we can provide goods and services for God's people, so we can help people when they're struggling, so we can give counseling to people who are struggling with addictions, etc. Now listen, all of these things are important, okay? So the elders and I, we spent a lot of time in care. We spent a ton of time in care for our members and praying for our members and walking with those who are struggling with addictions, whether that's some kind of alcohol addiction or a pornography addiction, etc. Those who are struggling in their marriages or those who need personal counseling, those who are hurting, hurting physically, hurting spiritually, hurting emotionally, spend time uh, in one-on-one relationships, building people up, leaning into people, providing uh, opportunities to, to marry people and, and a funeral if need be, etc., etc. Now listen, this is the temptation that we face. Let me, let me actually give it to you the way John Piper uh, said it in his book, The Pleasures of God. He said, he said, imagine that there is a war, a battle that exists, okay, out here. There's a battle. All right, picture blood. Let's say like old school battle, like swords. We're talking like civil war battle, all right? And then there is a, a little uh, military hospital that is set up outside of the battle field. Now, the military hospital is a busy place to be. It's an exciting place to be. It's a difficult place to be. There's blood all over the place, people dying. But then there's also celebrations, like somebody gets better, doing better, feeling, cut the leg off, take the hot iron, psst, good to go. Sorry about that. <laughs> Track with me here. The temptation is that we would begin to believe that the, 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 the war exists to fill the hospital, all right? Doctors need jobs, right? So I have an idea. Let's start a war because then doctors can have jobs. We need a hospital. We, we, we want the excitement of working in a hospital. Let's have a war so that way we can have a full hospital of people to deal with, Right? The war exists for that. That's ridiculous, all right? The, the hospital exists. Why? To send people, soldiers, get them healthy, back together, iron, whatever, and send them back into the battle. Now, here's the temptation in the church. We can be so caught up in the many tasks that we have that we're dealing with. Good things like counseling. Good things like walking with somebody who's struggling or helping somebody get their finances together or helping somebody find a job, etc., etc. And believe that that is the end in and of itself. But friends, what we're doing as we minister to the body and as we minister as a body is this. We are building laborers for the harvest. We are building, we're edifying warriors to be sent back into the battle. We celebrate, yes, when somebody's healthier than they used to be. Why? Not not as an end in and of itself, but because here's a healthy soldier ready to pick up the sword and go back into the battle. So pray, yes, we pray to the Lord of hosts. And what do we pray for? We pray that Saints would be edified, that laborers, soldiers would be built and ready for battle so that we can send them into the harvest. Pray for laborers. The second thing we are to pray for. 
The second thing we are to pray for is this. Pray that souls will be saved. Look what Christ says. Therefore, he says, pray earnestly to the Lord of hosts to send out laborers where? Into his harvest. To send out laborers into his harvest. Now, before we dive into our call to go into the harvest and to labor for the souls of the lost. Let me first sort of, if you'll allow me, take somewhat of a rabbit trail here. And I want to paint for you a picture of the dismal spiritual climate in our city. I want to just take a moment to sort of reflect on 2013 to reflect on our experiences as a church so that God may stir up in us a heart and a desire to go out into the harvest that is around us. Now first, I love Baltimore City as much as anybody I know. Like, I am a huge fan of Baltimore City, especially our ever-growing urban gardening movement. 1518 McCullough, come, come on down and check it out. Um, however, at the same time, I am keenly aware of the bondage, the spiritual bondage to the kingdom of darkness that many of our citizens live in. When I first moved here some years ago, I remember driving, uh, I was getting to know the area, and I was driving through, through the area as a whole uh, with a friend. And we drove down Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, which used to be sort of the, the jazz center of Baltimore and this, this amazing avenue. And as we drove down this avenue, what we see are uh, the, the effects of years of now drug trade, drug addiction, uh, generational poverty, uh, where those who, who had moved out and uh, those who did not have, who could not get out, remained. And here we drive through and we see, you know, boarded up houses and shops, um, uh, some open air drug trade. Uh, and then we take a left turn and we go about, what, 12 blocks or so. And we're at the Lyric Opera Hall where there's people walking and wearing tuxedos. And I remember my friend was like, just scratching his head, like, where are we? Like, are we, are we in Manhattan? Or are we, where in the, what's going on here? Now, f- let me just first say this. And I'm not going to stay here long, but let me just first say this. Um, There is a disparity between the rich and the poor in Baltimore. Amen? Those who have and those who have not. Our city is a picture of disparity. Our city is a picture of a... uh, It's a city where those who have really have, like education opportunity, resources, and those who don't, don't. There are those here in this room. You know what hunger feels like. You know what poverty feels like. Now, here's um, something that we've noticed that I've learned. Uh, In these two Baltimores, which, by the way, is a popular term. Have you ever heard that? The two Baltimores? So you've got sort of the, uh, I think there's a book called The Two Baltimores, I believe. I don't know. You've got sort of the mobile, professional Baltimore. And then you have uh, Baltimore who, who grew up here 
and who has suffered through years of, of poverty. Um, within both of these Baltimores, quote-unquote, I see striking similarities when it comes to bondage to sin. And so I'm talking about Baltimore very broadly right now. Um, One of the first issues that we see in our city is growing uh, secularism. Meaning this, so there, there is sacred and there's secular, correct? So secular are the things of this world. Secularism is a, um, a worldview that is defined by the things of this world, meaning we're focused on the here and the now. So we're focused on having pleasure now, not later. We're focused on having what we can get now, not later. There's a growing focus on the here and the now. Therefore, as a result, many young people across this city are giving up, quote-unquote, on church, giving up on the theology that has, has marked many of our families, giving up on God, focusing on some kind of uh, uh, of, of present sort of current reality uh, to the degree that the sacred, that the things of God are just simply left behind. I've seen this culture in our city eat Christians alive. I have seen, we have seen as a church, people who move to the city happily married, quote-unquote Christian families with smiles on their faces, only to be eaten alive by, by, by the, the desire for pleasure and the desire for the things of the here and now as opposed to eternal things and marriages then that have dissolved before our very eyes. I've seen a cultural Christianity that is absolutely scary more influenced by new thought philosophy, a denial of Jesus as God, as worthy of our worship, as the holy and just judge who's coming back to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is, no, he's turned into somebody who's just like me. He's just like kind of my buddy. Jesus, he's cool. If Jesus was cool, I know I'm cool. We're all good. God's good. God's got me. the, the uh, doctrines of God's wrath and, and eternal hell completely forgotten and ignored. Then what comes with that? So we have sort of a secularism focused on the here and now, the pleasures of this world, then that creates a cultural kind of Christianity that sort of focuses on the same. And then as there's quite a bit of hell sort of that is experienced in all of this, there then is a desire to escape. And so what we see are addictions. Folks just simply wanting to escape. Smoke a blunt, get drunk, have sex, whatever you can do to escape the problems of your life, your world, for just a moment. Additionally, our population has been an issue 
population decline. And I don't stand up here as a politician talking about the reasons that politicians talk about for population decline. In the Baltimore Sun, a little over a year ago, there was an article called A Hidden Cause of Baltimore's Population Loss, Abortion. In 2005, it was the last year that such statistics were collected. In 2005, Maryland ranked number three, third, out of all the states in the entire country when it comes to our abortion rate, nine times higher than it was in 1970. So if we want to talk about the population decrease in Baltimore, the population loss, forget property taxes, forget vacant houses, forget the lack of city services. Let's talk about the hundreds and thousands of citizens that we have killed in the past few years through abortion. And then I can hear someone say, well, even if they were born, they would have been born into poverty. And ah, there lies the rub. A general dehumanization of the poor. To believe that a baby born into poverty is not a baby worth being born. To believe that a poor baby is an unworthy baby that can't grow up and transform this great city that God loves. But instead, we see our children as less of a blessing and more of a burden. I've seen children used as as investments and as property, social security numbers stolen for tax returns to get a couple extra dollars, an overloaded foster care system. We're dealing with the third generation of the fallout of the crack epidemic of the 1980s, which means this. So those who were affected by the crack epidemic had children, and their children often had a mental deficiency. Now, those children have grown up, and they have children right now. We, we, have, we have a popular mental deficiency, mental illness, fallout from a crack epidemic from 30-some years ago is a massive problem in our city. And greed, greed, human greed. The wealthy taking advantage of those they can take advantage of, taking advantage of small businesses, etc. Greed on the corners as young guys decide that a quick dollar is better than an education. What we're talking about this morning is this. We're talking about nothing less than souls chained to the bondage of the kingdom of darkness. Must our citizens perish? Must sinners in Baltimore City die eternally separated from God, die under the eternal punishment of God's wrath. Friends, God has brought us here into the city for a season, for a purpose. There is a war to be fought. There is a harvest to be won in first or in Acts. Uh, why does the Apostle Paul decide to remain in Corinth for a year and a half? The dude was about to roll out, and God said, no, I want you to stay. Why? This is why. This was Paul's motivation to remain in Corinth. It was this, Acts chapter 18, verse 10. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, for there are many who are in the city that are my people. 
Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, for there are many here that are God's people. What is our motivation in Baltimore City? What is our motivation to remain here in 2014? What is our motivation to continue to serve together as a body, as family, as friends, united around the gospel? It's this, that God has many elect here in this city right now who remain under the bondage of sin and darkness, and they must be freed. And how will they be freed? They are freed through the ministry of the gospel. Pray that souls will be saved. Let me give you a challenge as we go into the new year. I, I challenged our elders with this, and we all agreed that we would, we would try this this year. And I want to challenge you guys as a whole and for the three-quarters of the church that isn't here this morning, pass it on to them. Let them know, okay? Here's my challenge in 2014. Uh, think of your neighbors on your block or in your apartment building. There's 12 months of the year, January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. Did I get them all? 12 months of the year, 12 neighbors in your home for dinner once a month this year. One neighbor in January, another neighbor in February. Imagine by the end of 2014, the relationships that you may have built on your block, the people that you rub shoulders with, the people that you see coming and going each morning and evening. Friends, build relationships with your neighbors on your block. Can we do that this year? Open your home. If you need help with buying dinner, just let me know and I'll give you money. Let's make it happen. And pray that souls will be saved. Now third, and we're going to close here. Third, pray for, lastly, pray for revival. He says, Christ says, the harvest is, does everybody see the word? Plentiful. The harvest is great, and we want to see the greatness of that harvest as we minister and serve, do we not? Pray for revival. Now, by that, I don't mean pray that uh, we have another sign put up on a building that says revival coming July 16th, and there's a tent that's put out or something like that, and speakers come in, and we have a week long. That's, not, that's like an invention of Charles Finney, all right? Not an invention of God, all right? Pray for true Gospel-inspired, grace-inspired, Holy Spirit-driven revival. Now, what is revival? Let me, give you a, let me give it to you in this way, just very briefly. Can you imagine a time, or can you remember a time, I should say, uh, in which you individually experienced exponential spiritual growth in your life? Can you imagine a time where you, the, the, the reality of sin, the reality of the cross and grace and forgiveness, the beauty of all of these things, the, the beauty of Christ, leaning into Christ, repenting and believing the gospel, just exponential individual growth during a season of your life. Do you remember that time? All right. Now, some of you may be experiencing that right now. I know some of you are, actually, because I have the opportunity to meet with you. Some of you are going through seasons of individual growth. This is what revival is. Revival is when that happens to not just one person. Revival is when that happens to an entire group of people at one time, where everybody is all of a sudden through the Holy Spirit experiencing a conviction of sin, the reality of sin, the beauty of the cross, the wonder of grace, falling into trusting and resting on Christ, loving their neighbors and fellow man, etc. 
When an entire group of people experience that at one time, and then that spreads to churches across denominations, meaning a, a number of churches in a city are experiencing that same kind of growth, and then that may spread even from beyond that city into another city. When the Holy Spirit, in God's sovereignty, gives us the favor and the grace in, in which he moves in that way, that is a revival. Now the harvest, he says, is plentiful. The harvest is great. Let's beg God that we may see the greatness of that harvest in our midst. Now I'll be honest with you for just a brief moment, as if I haven't been honest this entire time. I've been lying to you. Let me be honest for just a brief moment. I don't yet see signs of revival in our midst. I don't mean that as discouragement. Like, I see signs of individual growth. I see individual growth. I see groups growing, Bible studies, people doing amazing things, couples getting married on, uh, enjoying lives, etc. You know, there's, God is moving. But, like, when I look out my front window as if, if, if a revival is a hurricane, I look out my front window and the skies are still pretty clear. Like, we don't see... The rumblings. We don't see the, the, the darkening of the skies, the, the clouds rolling in. I don't say that as discouragement. I say that as a matter of urgency. Pray for a revival. We need it. Our church needs it. Our city needs it. My friends who are pastors of other churches in the city would say, yes, we need it. Pray for revival. And I don't even care where it starts, all right? It might start with new, new Metropolitan Church right down the street here. That's great. Pray that God brings revival to our city. Now, friends, these things are things that we are going to be talking about this coming year. They are things that God is moving us toward, moving our elders toward as we pray. And I ask you to pray with us. Let me give you one last thing to pray for. Pray that we just simply remain faithful. All right, laborers uh, are, are simply the ones who go out and faithfully do the work. But it's God who brings the growth. It's God who brings the fruit. Pray that we remain faithful. My, my prayer for myself is this. That that you could all essentially leave us. You could say, you know what, Joel? I don't like you. I don't like your preaching. There's a better church somewhere else. Or dropping out of the, uh, walking away from the faith. That you, you could essentially leave us and that my wife and I would wake up tomorrow and say, let's remain faithful. Like, let's just figure out how to remain. Because the word, every time I get discouraged, the word comes to me the same. There are many who are mine in this city. There are many in the city who are my people. Oh, that I would have that kind of faithfulness. And I, my prayer for you is that you would join me in this heartbeat. With or without results, in spite of whatever outcome may be, that we would be faithful. Pray for saints to be edified. Pray 
for the lost to be found. Pray for revival and pray that at the end of the day that we will be faithful until, until Christ comes back or takes us home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this, this simple instruction from Christ that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, we pray that you send laborers into the harvest. God, build up your saints here in this church. Allow us to, uh, to, to become warriors who go out into the darkness, into the battlefield, and laborers for the harvest. May we see souls saved. God, bring revival to our midst. Move in our hearts across this church, across our city. Let us see a, 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 a massive turn where individuals uh, repent and believe the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.